Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny will be interviewing Dr. Dean Radin. He is the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, as well as a distinguished professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. The two of them will be discussing his research into psychic phenomena, as well as his most recent book, Real Magic. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy McMillan, and we're here every Friday on Alternative Talk 1150 AM KKNW in Seattle and 103.3 KPCA in Petaluma, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with joy, peace, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives that are found at 1150kknw.com, as well as on iTunes and Podcast One. And if you ever want to find out more about me, you can always access my website at goldenoversoul.com. That is goldenoversoul.com. I'm really excited to bring you um, our guest today. Um, so just by way of background, uh, most of you know that in the last year I have moved to Petaluma, California, and I was very excited to be here for a number of reasons, but one of the ones that I was particularly interested in is that the Institute of Noetic Sciences is located right here in Petaluma, um, and their chief scientist, Dean Radin, has been on my interview list for a while. Um, and, you know, I always just kind of follow where my intuitive hunches take me in terms of who I reach out to uh, for guests at any given time. And I thought, gosh, Dean Radin has been on my guest list for, I mean, the show's been going on for four and a half years, been on there for several years. So why, why hadn't I gotten to, gotten around to asking him yet? And I thought, oh, well, this makes total sense. And it's very exciting to get to talk to him while I'm here in Petaluma, right down the road from uh, the Institute or the um, Institute, yes, where he is the chief scientist. So Dean Radin, welcome to Sunny in Seattle. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, so I'll just give a little background of the bio before we dive into our content for today. So, of course, Dean Radin uh, has his PhD, and he is the chief science scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and also a distinguished, distinguished professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He earned an MS in electrical engineering uh, and a PhD in psychology from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Before joining the research staff at IONS in 2001, Radin held appointments at AT&T, Bell Labs, Princeton University, the University of Edinburgh, and SRI International. He has given over 500 talks and interviews worldwide, and he is the author or co-author of hundreds of scientific and popular articles, four dozen book chapters, two technical books, and four popular books translated into 15 foreign languages. Um, and these you might know, The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, Supernormal, and Real Magic, which is the book that we're going to be drawing from the most today. Um, he has been interviewed on pretty much every major uh, television network out there on shows that you would recognize like Oprah and Larry King Live. And then you also, I imagine our listeners out there are familiar with the uh, documentary, uh, What the Bleep Do We Know?, um, which of course Dr. Radin featured in, and as well as a couple of other um, indie film and video documentaries such as I Am and 
and Intuition, PGS, which was one that I really liked. We interviewed Bill Bennett, who created that one uh, about a year or two ago. So if you want to find out more about Dr. Radin, uh, you can go to his website, which is deanradin.org. Or if you want to find out about the work that they're doing out at IONS, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, you can go to noetic.org. So Dr. Radin, um, let's just dive in. Um, You know, the title of the book that I think we're going to be talking the most about today is Real Magic. And, you know, you say this book is about magic. What do you mean by magic when you say that? Well, what I don't mean is fictional magic. So I don't mean Harry Potter. And I don't mean fake magic, like uh, like stage magicians. So uh, if it's not fiction and it's not fake, well, what's left over must be real. Uh, the real magic is, uh, by analogy, today's technologies are an application of the scientific worldview. Magic is a application of the esoteric worldview. They're both applications or practices. So what the esoteric worldview is quite different from the scientific worldview, and it suggests that consciousness plays a more fundamental role in reality. And so magical practices take advantage of this idea that consciousness is fundamental in some way, and it leads to three different kinds of practices. One is called divination, which is perceiving through space and time. Uh, In the vernacular, it's like fortune-telling, that sort of thing. Uh, The second is called force of will, which uh, suggests that your intention and attention can manipulate the physical world. This, in the vernacular, is thought of as spellcasting, that kind of thing. And then the third category is called theurgy, which assumes that uh, human existence is only one way in which consciousness can manifest. So there may be millions or an infinite number of ways in which consciousness can manifest. And if it happens to not be human and maybe invisible to our eyes, uh, we might call those spirits. So theurgy is about communicating with spirits and having them asking them to do things on our behalf. So divination, force of will and theurgy are the practices of real magic. Yes, and it's it's interesting to me because when I read your bio and you have especially the long bio from your website, which is so interesting. Um, and if anyone out there wants to check that out, you would access deanraden.org. But um, you know, you have for someone who has so many accolades in the field of science, you also were a very creative. Uh, you looks like you've got a lot of right brain stuff going on too: classical violin, fiddle, five string banjo. You've got your PhD in psychology, um, and you even talked about when you were younger being jet propelled. And so I'm just curious how how did you come to studying these these um, elements of real magic um, from such an interesting background? Well, as I say in the book, I I actually didn't know that I was studying magic until I started doing research on this book. And that's because the the concept of real magic, at least within the scientific world, is laughable. Like it's it's used as an insult to accuse another scientist of doing magic in the lab. And the, the thing that caught my eye, though, was that Uh, For many years, I've been interested in psychic phenomena, things like telepathy and clairvoyance and precognition. 
And the reason is that it's a very commonly reported experience. So we, the, the experience itself simply says that this is something that happens to humans. And the usual explanation from a scientific perspective is that these are coincidences or misremembering or other mundane reasons. The problem with that is that there is about a century or more, more than a century now of experimental research, which shows that some of the psychic phenomena in the laboratory can be observed. You, you can show that it's not any of the ordinary explanations. And so I thought that was very curious. You can do regular psychological experiments and experiments in other domains and show that things like telepathy actually do exist. Well, since you, you go through an entire scientific academic career and everybody's saying, no, this is nonsense, and then you look at the actual data and say, you know what, it's, it's not really nonsense. Well, that certainly would, would attract the attention of anybody who's curious about the, the nature of reality. So that's what caught my initial attention, that there is research available that says uh, some of these effects are real. And so for many years, 35, 40 years almost, I have been studying these kinds of phenomena, usually in laboratory experiments, and convincing myself through those experiments that, that some psychic phenomena actually are real, and they provide interesting clues about the nature of reality. And then at one point, I realized that uh, after beginning to read more about the esoteric literature, and I'd had read bits and pieces over the years, but I read it in depth. And that's when I realized that what we call parapsychology today, the study of psychic phenomena, is studying exactly the practices of divination, force of will, and theurgy. So, so this is a scientific discipline, parapsychology, that studies what is called real magic. And that, that formed the basis of, of my book. Yeah, and you come at it from an interesting perspective in that sense, because some people who are coming at it holding very tightly to, let's say, religious beliefs or the old the esoteric stuff that you were, the, the literature that you were looking at, or they come at it from a very um, dogmatic scientific perspective. And I think I either I read it in your book or I heard it in another interview that you identify as agnostic. And it seems like you just kind of walked right down the middle and looked only at what you were finding in the lab. And it, it really opened the door for you to, to discover some things that maybe other people would not have been able to find or weren't looking for. Right. Well, that's true. I, I did not start with a bias either in a religious or metaphysical direction, and nor do I have a bias towards scientism in which you assume that today's science is completely correct. So maybe, I mean, on the religious side, it just simply wasn't brought up that way. We're, everybody in my family is at least agnostic. Uh, and on the, the scientific side, uh, perhaps because as you mentioned, uh, my early career was in music and my father was an artist and I was always surrounded by art and music that I recognize that science has is methods and the theories, but it's also an art. There's an art form in science, especially when studying the edge of the known. And the art form says that, yes, you can, you can apply all kinds of interesting tools and techniques, but at the edge of the known, you also have to rely on creative intuition because 
by almost by definition at the edge of the known, you don't know what's after that. So when you look at the, the history of, of great scientists, great inventors, virtually all of them will say that at some point you have to rely on inspiration and intuition. You have to leap beyond in your imagination as to what you think is going on. So I recognize that there's a lot of strength, but also limitations in science. And on the, on the flip side, there are a lot of interesting ideas within metaphysical concepts, but most of it is not rigorously tested. So I came at this right from the middle of both uh, of appreciating the strengths and weaknesses of both sides. And perhaps that's why I've continued in this domain, because I don't feel pulled to drop into religious ideas, nor do I feel pulled to drop into scientific ideas. Yeah, and I want to point out, you know, when you're talking about being on the leading edge here or the edge of the known, um, I would love for you to just speak about exactly, you know, what you're doing at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. It's it's not, it doesn't seem like it is uh, beholden to some of the, you know, if you're at a university, some of the interests there. Like you all are independent, and so you are out there doing the leading edge work. Can you tell us a little bit about how IONS was founded and why it is that you all are able to do such leading edge research? We were founded by Edgar Mitchell, who was on Apollo 14, the, uh, the, the moon mission. Uh, Edgar was a lunar module pilot. So as, as he put it, that after his job was finished, namely landing on the moon and getting them back off again, he had the window seat and the space capsule coming back to Earth. And since he had a little bit more time to look out the window at a site that very few humans have ever seen, namely, as the capsule rotated, he would see the Earth, a little blue ball in the blackness of space, and then it would swing around, look at just empty space, of course, it's not empty, but he would see brilliant stars, and then he would see the moon, and he would see this again and again as the capsule rotated slowly. And something about simply uh, contemplating this amazing vision that he was able to look at directly, it sparked a mystical experience, a very classic experience of feeling a unity with all reality, the whole universe. And as, as he said, it, it wasn't an imagination, it was a palpable feeling that you are the same as the universe. And this is what mystical experiences are all about. So when he returned to, to Earth, uh, both literally and figuratively, he was determined to use the best tools of investigation that were available to try to figure out what that was. Because obviously, if, if a mystical state, you're, you're feeling that you and the universe are somehow one, that's a core belief in the esoteric traditions, but it's completely rejected by science. You know, like it doesn't even make any sense from a scientific perspective other than something like a hallucination. So he started looking into that literature and found there's, of course, a gigantic literature about people having these experiences. And in many cases, the people who have had these experiences have sparked uh, the greatest religions, have sparked the greatest scientific inventions, uh, almost always the result of that kind of experience is transformative in a positive way. So there are many good reasons to try to understand what, what is that experience? Is it real? So since he came from a technical background, uh, then the Institute was started to use the best tools of science that were available and scholarship 
to look into these somewhat unusual kinds of human experiences to simply figure out what are they and what are their implications. So uh, we were almost up to our 50th anniversary in a couple of years. And as of now, we have uh, seven or eight people on our science team. And the rest of the 40 or so employees are involved in administration and development. And also we own the, the Earthrise Retreat Center. So the science and the retreat center are co-located up in, in Petaluma. And one of the advantages of that is that we have roughly five to 6,000 people uh, come through the re retreat center and various workshops, and we invite them to participate in experiments, ongoing experiments. So we're slowly developing what will eventually be probably the world's largest database on transformative experiences. Oh, that's wild. Uh, and so let's talk about some of the findings that you all are are, are getting out there around psi. And when I say psi, we're just talking about um, psychic phenomenon or parapsychology. Um, is that correct, Dean? Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the scientific evidence that you all are co collecting around psi experiences, um, because it's it's I love that you brought in uh, statistics in the book about how what you're finding is um, it's just really inconceivable that folks are still skeptical that these kind of experiences or phenomena exist. So tell us a little bit about some of the scientific evidence that you all are collecting. Um, and I'm thinking specifically around some of the classes of experiments that have the most proof. Well, you know, the. The, there's an interesting paradox here in that from an experiential point of view, I'm talking about what individuals actually personally experience, the vast majority of the population has had at least one, one experience that you could put into a class of psychic phenomena, whether it's something as simple as hearing the phone ring and just knowing somehow instantly who it is on the other end of the line, even if it was not somebody who would normally call you. So it's not simply that every day uh, a child calls the parent and so you know that you're going to get these calls, but somebody who haven't, you haven't talked to in 20 years is on the other end of the line. You, their name suddenly pops to your mind before you pick up the phone. Sure enough, there they are. So that, that's sometimes called telephone telepathy. But there are many, many other kinds of experiences that people have, which if they pay attention to it, they'll realize, wow, that was an amazing synchronicity or an amazing coincidence or something like that. And it's very, very common. So this is just as true among scientists as it is among the general population. Most of the time, it may not be thought of as a psychic phenomena. As I said, it might be thought of as a coincidence. But the fact that it happens all the time should immediately make us question uh, the skepticism uh, that is at least publicly portrayed oftentimes by scientists because scientists have the same experiences. They just may not think of it as psychic. So, so that's just an aside. That's simply to say that, yes, there is skepticism, and that's, that is the traditional way that science would respond to these kinds of phenomena, Yeah. Uh, in, in spite of the fact that they're actually they're very common. So when, when you do a scientific test, uh, what you would like to do is to be able to produce something on demand every single time that anybody could replicate 
without any prior experience or knowledge. Well, at the leading edge of the known, we can't do that. So you have to do an experiment in the laboratory under controlled conditions that require many, many people, many, many individual trials that are repeated and so on. And the results are always going to be evaluated in statistical terms. Well, some experiments like uh, telepathy, just to give one example, the odds against chance for the experiments that have been published and all of actually, which are all of the experiments known and, and a particular style of telepathy experiment, the odds against chance are quadrillions to one. That means mm. trillions upon trillions upon trillions against one. So it's virtually uh, proof is a word we don't use in science. We only use that in alcohol. Um, but we're, we have very high confidence yeah. that what we can see in a laboratory test, which excludes by design all of the mundane explanations, we have high confidence that, yeah, something like telepathy really does exist when you've blocked every other known means of communication between two people. Yeah. Yeah. One of the ones that um, I have actually experimented with in the past several years that I'm fascinated by and was also really um, intrigued to learn that the U.S. government has been funding studies around this for decades upon decades, and that's around remote viewing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what remote viewing is and, and uh, some of the work that is, or some of the discoveries or how, how commonplace this really is? Remote viewing is a euphemism for clairvoyance, so perception through space or time. Uh, it, it's a euphemism because uh, if you're doing research on clairvoyance uh, under government contracts, you can't use words like clairvoyance. <laughs> so in that case, the, uh, the U.S. government from uh, about 1972 to 1995 had a highly classified program of, of research and application on the use of remote viewing for espionage. And so in the early days, much of it was simply designed to, <clears throat> to demonstrate, uh, is it a real thing? Can, can you get uh, real information? And then later, can you get actionable information through the use of clairvoyance? And the answers were yes. And that's why the program kept being funded, because generally you'd get funds for about a year. But for over 20 years, year after year, they, they kept getting funding because they were able to demonstrate that yeah, this is this is a real thing. So, so that's the uh, that was the origin of it. This had only become known publicly in 1995, when that program became declassified. Yes, yeah, and another one that um, that I had read about before, and is I I think um, I will have a hard time explaining, but around the random number generators and the global consciousness project about the ability to measure the effects uh, that worldwide events have on the global consciousness and that we can actually track this from a scientific perspective. Can you speak a little bit about that one? So the metaphor here is a tsunami detector. So a tsunami is uh, typically caused by something like an earthquake under the ocean and it creates the equivalent of a wave about the size of the ocean a very large wave. And that's why they're so destructive when they hit the surface or hit, hit shore because they have this wave that's gigantic. But when you're out in the middle of the ocean, you can't see the tsunami. 
like the the waves may rise a couple of feet, but the waves are always going a couple of feet. So you you can't see it. So what you do to detect a tsunami is you drop a couple thousand buoys all around the ocean and you have each buoy send a radio wave to a central receiving station, which says things as simple as what is the height or direction of the buoy right now. And so if you imagine that you're getting an incoming signal of thousands of incoming signals, they're all going to be random because the height of each buoy under normal circumstances is independent of the height of every other buoy. So you just get like a random patterning. If if a tsunami occurs, then you will find, to your surprise, that hundreds or even thousands of buoys will all start moving in in concert with each other. There'll be a coherence that arrives, like they'll all start rising and falling at the same time. And that's what tells you that there's a gigantic wave that has developed in the ocean and you better be ready for it. So with that metaphor in mind, what the Global Consciousness Project does is use electronic random number generators, which are like electronic coin flippers, uh, to act like buoys that are floating not in an ocean of water, but an ocean of consciousness. So that's the metaphor. It's actually both real and metaphor at the same time. And that yeah. the random number generators are a real thing, but we're metaphorically floating in an ocean of consciousness. So the thing that we hypothesize in this experiment is that this ocean of consciousness can be warped from its normal flat state into a state that is equivalent of a wave as, as a result of hundreds of millions of people paying attention to the same thing at the same time. So this is only possible in modern history where media allows a single event to be broadcast to everybody around the world at the same time. And so you can infer that on certain occasions uh, that you will have hundreds of millions, perhaps a billion or more people paying attention to the same thing at the same time. Well, that in a mental space is very unusual. And so if the, the, this combination of all of these minds that are suddenly coherent, if, that, if mind and matter are actually related to each other, as many experiments suggest, then perhaps during these periods of very tight mental coherence around the globe, that it would create something like a, like a ripple in space-time in the physical world that we would detect using our random number generators, exactly in the same form as, as though it was a tsunami detector. So we did an experiment that lasted about 20 years where uh, we took advantage of these large-scale world events and the random number generators, we had at the peak about 70 generators run each, each one set in a major city around the world. And each generator would send data uh, up to a server at Princeton University. And we would be able to track then uh, what is the state of randomness over periods of time, just like we would be tracking what are all the buoys doing in any given time? Well, most of the time it's random. But what we found is that during periods of, uh, of celebrations that were worldwide, things like the opening ceremony of the Olympics or important presidential elections uh, or terrorist attacks or big earthquakes and so on, uh, over the 20 years, we had 500 such events that, that we identified. We found that the randomness, which normally is there almost all the time, the randomness goes away. 
that we start seeing that there's the equivalent of a, a degree of physical coherence that begins to arise when all of these minds are also coherent. So this is a mind-matter interaction experiment, but at the size of the entire globe. So what does that suggest about consciousness uh, as a collective um, when you have that finding of that huge wave that will happen around world events? Well, in the laboratory, we see that an individual's attention and intention can affect a physical system to a small degree. And so the question always has been, well, what happens if we scale that up from one person to a million and then a hundred million and then a billion? Uh, does it affect the world at large? And so what the Global Consciousness Project tells us is, yes, it does affect the globe, the, the world at large. It affects it in a physical way. Uh, the physical way some people can sense. <clears throat> some people, for example, who are at a, uh, a concert, say, and there's a particular uh, piece of music there, everybody feels completely in sync, as though they're on the same wavelength, so to speak. They can feel that effect. They feel it as electricity in the air. And there are lots of other metaphors that are used to describe this strange feeling where everything seems to gel. Well, the, that is pretty common in provocative entertainment, but it also seems to be not simply a psychological effect because the random number generators are physical devices where you detect that there's a physical change happening. So if you have 100 million people praying for peace, uh, does that do something? The answer is yes. It doesn't necessarily push us towards peace, but it does affect the physical world. Yeah, and, and how can we harness these powers for good in the long run to be able to hopefully affect world peace or other things um, of that nature? Well, uh, this actually is a great time for our break. Um, I am joined today by Dr. Dean Radin. He is the chief science scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences right here in Petaluma. We are discussing some of the findings in his uh, latest book, Real Magic. And when we come back from the break, we will continue diving into some of this contact content. We'll be back in just a few. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. One of the biggest draws of a festival or fair is the food. Fried dough, barbecue, kebabs, and more. But much of that tasty food is served with plastic plates, cups, and utensils. Everywhere I went, I kept seeing mountains and mountains of garbage. That's Joey Diana Gates of Ithaca, New York. She says using disposable plastic causes a lot of carbon pollution. The materials are extracted, refined, manufactured, shipped, sold, brought home, used, and discarded. So four years ago, Gates started a nonprofit project called Dish Truck. We provide durable dishes for folks to use at events and festivals instead of disposables. At the end of an event, she takes the dirty dishes away. She composts the food scraps and washes the plates and silverware in a commercial kitchen. Gates plans to grow the project. She hopes to get her own kitchen, where she can install a solar hot water heater and wash the dishes using renewable energy. And she is exploring other innovative ways to improve energy efficiency. For example, by using the heat from discarded wastewater to help warm the next round of fresh water. So climate-conscious festival-goers, eat up and don't worry about the dishes. 
Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at YaleClimateConnections.org. Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section, when dad injured his back, when your basketball star tore his ACL. Opioids helped with the pain, and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Opioids are powerful pain-reducing prescription medicines, but most people who are prescribed opioids don't finish their prescriptions. So millions of unused opioids are sitting in homes across the country. And tragically, more than 100 Americans die every day from overdoses involving opioids. What can you do to protect your family? Remove the risk of unused opioids from your home. Pills, patches, or syrups in drawers, purses, and cabinets, anywhere they might be hiding. To find out how to dispose of them properly, visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. And welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, joined today by Dr. Dean Radin. And before the break, we were talking a bit about some of the findings um, that they have collected around some of the classes of experiments that really have a lot of proof um, around these psi phenomenon. Um, and I wanted to ask also around some of the more striking findings to me, um, and I think this will be of interest to our listeners, because I know I get into conversations sometimes with you know, family and friends around um, what I think would fall under the theurgy or the, uh, let's say, mediumship communicating with disembodied spirits and about whether or not that is the real thing. And I there is a lot of skepticism when this comes up in conversations that I have had while I fully have believed in it, not only because of the science behind it, but because of my own personal experiences and not being able to explain it any other way. But I loved that that was included here. And I'm I'm curious um, around your findings with, uh, you know, what were some of the most striking findings or experiments that you did with the the spirits or the theurgy? Well, what, what we've done at IONS is Institute of Noetic Sciences, uh, is primarily mediumship research, but we've also started to do research on channeling. So with mediumship, what the, the, the initial question is, that, uh, is it possible for a psychic or a medium to gain information about a, a, a deceased person uh, that, is, that is accurate? And so one of the reasons why there's so much skepticism about this is that there is a history of fraud uh, in uh, in every kind of psychic phenomenon. So it's easy to simply dismiss it all as that all must be fraud. Uh, the second reason is that uh, typically if you go to see a medium in person, the, uh, the skepticism would say that the reason why they're getting information from you is they keep peppering you with all kinds of questions, some of which will stick because they just by accident happen to be correct, and if you follow the line of questioning uh, using a method called cold reading, you can find out a lot about a person just by asking them lots of questions and listening to what the answers that are yes and no. So when you do an experiment to test whether a medium is actually accurate or not, you can't have the, the client uh, anywhere near the medium. The medium cannot even see the client because the moment you can see somebody, you can start getting information about them. So in an experimental context, you use what's called a proxy sitter. 
the sitter is the client who wants to know about their dead Uncle Bob, say. And so experiments have been done under double and triple blind where the medium and the client are completely separate uh, and you have a proxy person who is sitting in as the sitter. Uh, the, the proxy sitter doesn't know anything about Uncle Bob. So they're just sitting there as a way for the medium to mentally connect with, with Uncle Bob. And, and so they can do that and they start giving a reading about Uncle Bob and their experience, the medium's experience is that they're actually talking to Uncle Bob or seeing images about him. And so they'll, you develop a transcript of everything that the medium said about Uncle Bob. So now you have another person, another proxy sitter come in to get a reading for Uncle George, say, a different, a different client. So now you have a transcript of Uncle Bob, a transcript of, of Uncle George. You give both of the transcripts that have redacted anything about names. So it's only about information, but no names involved. And you give it to people who know Uncle Bob and also to other people who know about Uncle George. And they have to select which of the two transcripts better matches their departed loved one. And so if you do this repeatedly with lots of different uh, people involved in the reading, uh, by chance, you would expect that the medium would just be telling random things. And so you would be able, the, the clients would select the correct transcript only 50% of the time. And that, that would be chance because the medium didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. But what you find in these experiments is that really good mediums will sometimes get 60 or 70% right. Well, then it's from a statistical perspective, this is extremely unlikely to happen by chance. So we've done experiments like this, double-blind experiments with proxy sitters. And we find that um, really good mediums, typically what that means is that they have a very good reputation uh, and work as a professional medium. Uh, more often than not, they actually do quite better than chance. So what this tells us is that uh, it doesn't tell us that they're talking to actual departed people. It tells us that they are accurate in terms of the information that they can get. The source of the information is still an ongoing controversy in the field. It is, it's not a settled issue as to where the information comes from. As I said, the medium's experience is that they're talking to a departed person. But we have yet to figure out... A, a, a way to know with any certainty that that is in fact what is actually going on. All we can do is say that some mediums are not fraudulent and they are in fact getting accurate information. Mm. And what are you, you mentioned channeling. What are you all looking at around channeling? Because that's, I love, I have a lot of channeled sources that I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. So in channeling, uh, we're working with full trance channels. These are ones who, uh, people who, uh, their conscious personality fades into the background and something else takes over and speaks through the person. So being in Northern California, it's not that difficult to find full <laughs> trance channels or mediums or psychics. Right. Uh, like every, every side street has another one. Right. Uh, and and so we were able to get people to come to the laboratory, and we've done studies, for example, to uh, while a, a channeler is doing their thing, we need people who can switch in and out 
even though it's a full trans channel, can they be a channel for five minutes and then stop and now be themselves for five minutes and yeah. now go back and so on? Because we have to have a comparison. And so we take their EEG and we look at their psychophysiology and we record their voice and we have random number generators going. We have lots of different ways of measuring the environment and the channeler, uh, him or herself. But the idea of that uh, when they switch into the channeling mode, maybe they'd show significant differences in their brain activity or their physiology or something in the environment changes. So we've done an experiment like that. And the only thing that we found that changed when the person uh, was channeling, we expected to find something like changes in physiology or brain activity, uh, but there wasn't any change. The only thing that would show to change was the voice analysis. And mm -hmm. that's not too surprising because one of the things that typically happens with a channeler is that when they switch into the the, the entity that's speaking through them, their voice typically will change as well. And so the, we we did able, we were able to measure that, but we didn't, to our surprise, actually, we didn't see any changes in their physiology at all. Well, that is interesting because it was. I know when looking at some of the mediumship um, findings that you had, I was fascinated by um, one of the experiments where they were looking at uh, they were judging whether someone was alive or dead when they would show a photograph and they would uh, the medium would decide whether the person was alive or dead and make that selection but there was a part of the brain that actually registered something before the human could actually consciously choose to select alive or dead i don't i'm probably not explaining that very well but it looked like there was something going on in the brain activity with some of the medium uh, folks that you looked at that's right the medium's brain showed a difference when they correctly identified somebody as dead as compared to alive. Huh, oh, that's interesting. Well, so, you know, but what I should say though, is that there have been similar studies done with psychics who were asked to do something like a precognition test. And so they're looking at two pictures and one of them in the future will be randomly selected. And studies there too have shown that when the correct picture was selected by the psychic, or not even a psychic, just the subject in the experiment, that their brain shows a difference when they're about to be correct versus about to be incorrect. Huh. Yeah, well, I guess you all will continue looking at, at those, um, at the, both the channels and the mediums around this, and I look forward to seeing what else comes out around it. Um, I, I do want to turn, Dean, to some of the other information um, specifically around, well, there were, I definitely want to look at one or two of the Merlin class magicians that are, that are listed in your book, but backing up a little bit, looking at a scientific worldview versus the, uh, what, what's called the perennial philosophy. Um, and it, it, it seems like there is a movement, a trend toward a movement away from materialism, meaning that the physical is primary, consciousness is secondary, and toward more of a view that everything arises from consciousness. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what your thoughts are around that. Is, are, is that trend real and where are we seeing that evidenced? Well, one way we can see that there's, there's a change in the academic world about the nature of consciousness is simply that we are talking about it now. 30 to 40 years ago, the only people who would ever talk about consciousness in any form were philosophers. Now there are uh, practically every month a, a scientific meeting on, on the nature of consciousness. 
a lot of it has to do with neuroscience about the activity of the brain. Uh, but there are other big conferences that include everything, including uh, the neurosciences and art and science of other disciplines, including parapsychology. Uh, and it's, it's no longer surprising to find that there are entire conferences that are looking in detail now at uh, consciousness in psychedelics and consciousness in meditation and, and in scientific sense. So this, what we're seeing then is a trend in the academic world where it used to be either ignored or a laughable topic, and now it's a mainstream topic. So that's, that's one important trend, and this is true worldwide, not just in the United States. Uh, the, so the, the other aspect of this, though, is uh, there also is a, a growing trend in the academic world to take a second look at the esoteric traditions. So the esoteric traditions, as you mentioned, is the perennial philosophy. It, it assumes that consciousness is much more important than, than a materialist perspective would take. And in the, again, the last 30 years or so, there's been a, a renaissance in the academic world where there are now people and departments and even centers that are interested in esoteric studies. And so one of the reasons for this is that uh, esoteric ideas have been around far longer, actually since the beginning of human history, up until about the Enlightenment. So it's the majority of human history that was the prevailing philosophy about reality. The scientific uh, domain is relatively new. It's only 500 years old or so, whereas the esoteric worldview is tens of thousands of years old. So... We have a whole new generation of anthropologists and philosophers and scholars who are interested then about what is it about that ancient worldview that actually is not so ancient. Because if you, you look at detail at these, these ideas like alchemy and astrology and herbalism, which are all deeply embedded in esoteric ideas, that was the formation of science as we know it today. And so in the process of something like herbalism turning into the pharmaceutical world, was something left out? Well, it turns out, yeah, there are some things that were left out. And the same goes for alchemy and the same goes for astrology. So our modern way of viewing reality comes out of this more ancient uh, way of seeing the world, but, it, but some important elements were left out. And that's why this has become... Um, a, a not new really, but a uh, a resurrection of some older ideas that are being taken more seriously now. Yeah, and I also like uh, you mentioned uh, the field of medicine and the role of spirituality in health is something that it seems to be becoming very um, I wouldn't say mainstream, but people are really talking about it. Um, I've I've interviewed Dr. Kelly Turner on the show before who has devoted a great body of work to looking at cases of radical remission. And if so many of those are actually happening, you know, what's going on there? Um, so is, it seems like medicine is a very promising field where we can look at this now. It's now pretty well accepted that uh, spirituality is an important factor in health and healing. And there are a couple, not too many yet, but a couple of university medical schools who incorporate courses in spirituality. So at least that doctors realize that this is an important element of how a person is going to, to heal. 
So this is not about religion necessarily. It's more about the ideas about what people think in terms of who and what they are. It's it's about personal meaning and concepts of the divine that may not have a religious basis, but simply things that people feel. So, so it's true that spirituality has become important in medicine. And of course, the one of the aspects of spirituality that links it to parapsychology is that spirituality often involves experiences that transcend the usual constraints of space and time. That's why that's why it's considered strange, larger than yourself in some way. There's something bigger because you get a sense of something that transcends space and time. Well, that's exactly what parapsychology studies. It's about phenomena that transcend space and time. When somebody has one of those experiences and they're paying attention to it, uh, it can be transformative. I mean, their personality can change, their health status can change. It gives the person a sense that there is something larger going on than just their body, that their mind is more expansive, perhaps. Yeah, and the ability of of uh, as an individual to affect our own biology through um, uh, intention or belief. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to make sure we had time. I just I love the section on you went through history and there were some, as you call them, Merlin class magicians. And I was particularly fascinated by St. Joseph of Copertino. Um, it, with, it looked like the way that you, uh, or at least in the book, I'm just quoting here, 35 years of multiple eyewitness testimonies from ordinary people as well as popes, cardinals, ambassadors, dukes, and kings from all over Europe uh, documented this, and this was just the formal written testimony. And so, you know, we've we've talked a lot about the the scientific evidence that we now have behind this psi phenomena. Do you mind telling us a little bit about Saint Joseph? Because I just love the stories. The story aspect is great. Well, the reason I put in stories about these Merlin class magicians, so to speak, is because from the scientific evidence the effects that we see in the laboratory tend to be fairly weak and require a lot of statistics in order to to show that there's something going on. And so it could leave a reader with the sense that if these these are tiny little effects, why do we care? And so the question is, do, does it scale up? If you have somebody who's really talented, uh, can you be at really big effects that are undeniable because everybody could see it? And the answer is yes. And so there are a number of, of people in historical sense, and a few today. Uh, these people are very rare. Uh, St. Joseph was an example of such a person, uh, and he was most famous for levitating. So he would go into a, a religious fervor and simply levitate. So the, there are, of course, lots of stories of the saints uh, who who do things like levitate and bilocate and other very large effects that were considered to be miracles, divine miracles. St. Joseph's case was a little unusual in that uh, in the Vatican archives, there are many documents, many books that were collected by the, the devil's advocate during uh, the discussions about whether he should be elevated to sainthood where they went through all of the data that was available. These were mostly interviews with people who had seen him levitate. And that, that included the, the royalty and bishops and so on who swore that, yes, they really did see that. But there are also 
unknown thousands, maybe tens of thousands of uh, of ordinary people who would who went to the church services where Saint Joseph was given the the homily, and he would levitate. So this was well known, at least among people who were living at the time, that this was the flying saint. <laughs> so, so what are we to do this from from a modern day? Well, that was hundreds of years ago. Uh, it's difficult to believe because we don't know of any flying saints today. Uh, there are people who do have some remarkable abilities, but as far as I know, there's nobody who can levitate more or less on demand. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yes, and I just, um, as we're getting close to the end of our hour, I just want to make sure for uh, anyone out there who is listening and wants to find out more, I have, of course, been talking to Dr. Dean Radin, the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences here in Petaluma. Um, the book that we've been drawing from today is called Real Magic. Uh, Dean's website is deanradin.org, so you can find out more about his books and and his work. And of course, if you want to know more about what they're doing out at IONS, the Institute of Noetic Science, uh, you can go to noetic.org. Um, you know, Dean, we've got less than a minute left or so. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with today as we as we bring the show to a close? I guess uh, I would recommend that uh, people feel not, uh, don't feel too strange about discussing your experiences with other people because the likelihood is that they have had similar experiences and they never talked to anybody about it. This is a, a taboo that I would like to break because so many people have, a, have very strange experiences of transcending space and time in one way or the other. Uh, and and we, we don't hear about this because people think that others will find it strange. Well, maybe they are strange, but it's very likely that the other person has had something even stranger. So I encourage people to talk about their experiences. Yes, I love that. Yeah, I like the the trend that is the tide is turning and it's becoming more commonplace to be able to share these things uh, within your friend and family circle as well as with uh, the the public at large. And um, thank you so much for the work that you all are doing on that leading edge of the known, Dr. Raiden. It has been such a joy to talk to you today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And for everyone else there out there listening, thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Sunny in Seattle, coming from Petaluma, and uh, we'll see you next week. I'm signing off. <laughs>